That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. Without exaggeration, I believe that this week's interview is the most important I have conducted since Nuclear Hot Seat began in June of 2011. It's with Dr. Lloyd C. Williams, an organizational psychologist who specializes in working with Fortune 100-level companies as a management and organizations consultant and coach. He coined the term organizational psychosis and explains what it is, how it applies to Japan, TEPCO, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the entire nuclear industry. In addition, he gives us some key thoughts for what it will take to turn the nuclear situation around. Within our movement, this is truly unprecedented analysis of vital importance to our strategizing both here and in Japan. So I urge you to listen. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, March 5th, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. We start off with breaking news out of Canada from Zach Nokamico Reuter regarding a radioactive tritium site in Peterborough, Ontario, close to Toronto, and the nuclear reactors on Lake Ontario. Zach, tell us, what was the circumstance around Peterborough, Ontario? This uh, was a way for the nuclear industry to get rid of its radioactive tritium gas waste into the consumer goods stream. So at the Peterborough Airport, inconspicuously, with no radiation marking, was a tritium sign manufacturing company named Shield Source. Now, when you say sign manufacturing, what kind of signs did they manufacture? Well, most exit signs on the top of a door in an institution are actually plugged in or have battery power. But some of them are made with radioactive, self-illuminating tritium. And those will, and according to Helen Caldicott, tritium can penetrate anything, anything except for gold. So that means anytime tritium is in your environment or in your food or even in that sign, it's irradiating everything around it. And tritium is a carcinogen and it can cause cancer. You said that there were radiation levels being registered around the plant. Tell us what a few of those are. Well, even their own environmental monitoring emissions data showed that the soil outside of the plant was tested at 1.5 million becquerels per liter. The apples across the street were 500,000 becquerels per liter. The apples 6.9 kilometers away were upwards of 876 becquerels per liter. And one becquerel is one radioactive disintegration per second per liter. What actions have been taken against Shield Source? Well, we had public meetings. We invited Dr. Edwards and uh, Dr. Harvey from Edwards from the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility and Harvey from Physicians for Global Survival. They came to our community and they talked about how 
Tritium was being broadcast all over our community and how the industry was marketing its waste as a consumer good in these signs. And I used video, actually. I did a toxic tour with a Tritium tracker named Jeff Brackett, who's been following this company since the early 90s. We did a toxic tour of the site, and I made a video of it. And that video went to the local nearby town councils who showed it in council. And we really started a grassroots campaign to organize where everyone who was a part of it uh, determined the character of their own participation in the struggle. So we had this group that we called SAGE, which is Safe and Green Energy Peterborough. Let's cut to the chase on this. What just happened? We received word from the Nuclear Safety Commission, the rubber stamp agency here in Canada, that Shield Source has elected to not renew its operating license and is now going to decommission. Um, but what's interesting of note for Americans is that Shield Source is owned by someone named Bill Lynch, who is the same owner who abandoned the Safety Light site at uh, Bloomsburg on the Susquehanna, and Safety Light was the current iteration of U.S. Radium. So the old owners of U.S. Radium were the ones who opened up shop in Peterborough, Ontario. But if you can see any of the uh, NRC violations around U.S. Radium, they had violations ranging from the 1940s all the way up to 2007 when they abandoned the site. And now it's an EPA Superfund cleanup site that was abandoned by the same owner who's likely going to abandon the uh, decommissioning process here in Peterborough as well. But the EPA says it's a Superfund $130 million cleanup site in the Susquehanna River in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, but nothing has gone on since 2007 to actually remediate the site. And americium, strontium, tritium, cesium, and radium is because of the same owner that we just closed down here in Peterborough, is this stuff is leaking into millions of Americans' drinking water. It sounds like there's ongoing bad news, but at least a little bit of good news, in that there's no more new sign manufacturing taking place. Now it's just a matter of remediation for the next... At least 123 years. So it's a win, but with a back end that is going to keep us and our heirs and their heirs busy for a lot of decades to come. That was Zach Nochemico Reuter reporting from Canada. Here in the U.S., some leaders are souring on nuclear power costs. As the cost of building a new nuclear plant soars, there are signs of buyer's remorse. In Georgia last week, Southern Company told regulators it needed to raise its construction budget for Plant Vogel in eastern Georgia by $737 million to $6.85 billion. At about the same time, a Georgia lawmaker sought to penalize the company for going over budget, announcing a proposal to cut into Southern Company's profits by trimming some of the money its subsidiary Georgia Power makes. The legislation has a coalition of Tea Party, conservative, and consumer advocacy groups behind it. That's quite a coalition. In Florida, lawmakers want to end the practice of utilities collecting fees from customers before any electricity is produced. According to Florida State Representative Mike Fasano, a Republican and self-described nuclear power supporter, quote, the price tag keeps going up. The time frame they are going to build it has been extended year after year after year. The second-guessing from officials in Georgia and Florida is a sign that maybe the nation is not quite ready for a purported nuclear renaissance.
In Hanford, Washington, the news continues to be not good. The nuclear waste leakage is being defined further. It is now known that out of 177 storage tanks on site, 149 have only a single wall or shell structure, and 67 of those were suspected leakers. Now, the rest were, quote, thought to be secure, end quote, but thought to be is a relative term because in a container that big, a drop of even a fraction of an inch can represent many gallons of radioactive waste. According to Jerry Pollitt, co-founder and executive director of Heart of America Northwest, if you stretch them end to end, there are 40 miles of unlined trenches at Hanford into which our federal government was dumping radioactive waste from nuclear weapons production at its own reactors until 2004. As Jane Hedges of Washington's Department of Ecology explained, there's no easy way to get extremely accurate measurements of the leakage at Hanford because lowering cameras or instruments into the tanks isn't practical. The stuff inside melts the instruments and eats rubber and plastic. That's what's leaking towards the Columbia River. In a story that is beyond numbnuts and directly into evil, A report last week issued by the World Health Organization and clearly meant to be a masterstroke in diverting people's concerns from the radiation disaster that's happening in Japan. They said that the risk of adverse impacts on human health caused by radiation that leaked during the crisis at TEPCO's Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant is probably, and I quote this exactly, infinitesimal. Last Thursday, WHO released the report saying health hazards resulting from the nuclear crisis are low. The report also says the risk of people in radiation-affected areas getting cancer will not be higher than during their normal lifetime. Yeah? Tell that to the kids who already have thyroid cancer. To counter the influence of the World Health Organization... Independent WHO, a grassroots movement set up by a collective of associations and individuals, has mounted a permanent silent vigil in front of WHO headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. Their objective is for the World Health Organization to fulfill its duty to protect those populations affected by radioactive contamination. I will have more to say about the World Health Organization's report at the end of this podcast. Regarding the concerns about radiation in Japan, according to a Tokyo professor, radionuclides are being released continuously into the ocean from Fukushima. Jay Kanda of the Department of Ocean Sciences and Tokyo University of Marine Science and Technology said there is a continuous rate of cesium-137 being released into the sea from the plant. The radionuclides are being released continuously somewhere around the reactor housings. According to a survey by the Tokyo University of Agriculture and Technology and Hokkaido University, a frog has been found to have over 6,700 becquerels per kilogram of cesium-137 in it. The frog was captured in Nihonmatsu, Fukushima Prefecture, which is only 40 kilometers, about 18 miles, west of the crippled nuclear plant. The finding suggests animals positioned relatively high in the food chain 
tend to accumulate more radioactive materials, this according to the research team. So if this is what's happening to a frog, what is happening to people? Children. Fetuses. According to a study by the Yomiuri Shimbun, 69% of people surveyed across Japan expressed concern about the impact of radioactive material on their health or that of their family. However, this story went on to cite the World Health Organization's study and then say that the goal of reducing annual radiation contamination levels to one millisievert or less per year was misleading. The Fukushima prefectural government considers the strict decontamination goal as an impediment to encouraging residents to return to their homes. And this Fukushima prefectural government has asked the central government to set a new target. In other words, game the numbers. The numbers change, but the science and the impact on human life does not. This purported news story went on to urge Izumita not to exacerbate damage caused by, quote, nasty radiation rumors. So I guess it was radiation rumors that put 6,700 becquerels per kilogram of cesium-137 in that frog. Anybody remember the earless bunnies? I'll have that picture up on the website. And finally, this infuriating story and a perfect lead-in to today's interview. Japan is going to begin restarting its idled nuclear plants after new safety guidelines are in place later this year, according to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. In a speech to Parliament last Thursday, February 28th, Mr. Abe pledged to restart nuclear plants that pass the tougher guidelines, which are expected to be adopted by the new quote-unquote independent watchdog agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Authority, as early as July. A note that there is no such thing as an independent nuclear watchdog agency. They are all complicit with the nuclear industry. He did not specify when any of the reactors might resume operation, and news reports have suggested that it might take months or even years to make the expensive upgrades needed to meet the new safety standards. Oh, gee, it's going to cost money to protect people from nukes. By making the promise in front of the diet, by making the promise in front of the diet, the parliament, Mr. Abe indicated in the strongest way yet that he planned to move ahead with a campaign pledge to reverse his predecessor's hopes that Japan would begin weaning itself off nuclear energy. Lax regulation and a cozy relationship between the nuclear industry and the government helped make Japan vulnerable to the Fukushima accident, which I have to point this out. This article lists Fukushima as the world's second worst nuclear plant disaster. Nah, guys, this is the worst. The worst in the planet. The worst industrial accident ever. So Japan, which has twice been hit with nuclear bombs and currently has three nuclear reactors in total meltdown with missing corium and untold levels of radiation, to say nothing of their seismic instability, is making plans to put nukes back online. How much more perfect could it be to introduce this week's interview? I'm thrilled to share it with you. I spoke with Dr. Lloyd C. Williams, who is an organizational psychologist, coach, and management consultant to Fortune 100-level companies. 
Throughout his long career, Dr. Williams has accomplished and led programs as chair and professor at UC Berkeley, the University of Notre Dame, Massachusetts, Grenoble Business School, the International School of Management, and the University of Singapore, among others. He's the author of five books, and, well, you get the idea. This man has a massive international reputation for reorganizing governments, agencies, and places like the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Williams coined the term organizational psychosis, and considering how often we see crazy behavior by governments and corporations involved with nuclear, what he has to say goes a long way towards explaining in clinical terms not only what the problem is and how it came about, but how we as a movement for nuclear sanity might strategize to turn this stance around. Dr. Williams, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, give us a general sense of what you do for organizations. Um, I work in a variety of different arenas. One is in the area of leadership development and leadership coaching. Another is in the area of change management, change development processes, and how those work effectively with different types of persons, multicultural and multinational issues and program development issues for organizations, and then, I guess, basically looking at maintaining the social, emotional, and effective health of the organization through addressing issues such as depression, anxiety, fears, trepidations, psychosis, those types of things. You coined the term organizational psychosis. What does that mean? Organizational psychosis is uh, the creation of a set of norms and actions that craft structures within the organization that are unable to distinguish the rational process of change and development from the irrational structures of power control, disempowerment, and dysfunction. It is the development of dysfunction based on a set of prescribed strategies that increase the potential for control through the devaluing and the creation of personal mistrust and personal self-esteem, thereby creating a dependence on the organizational leader and the structure to validate the needs of everything. So effectually what happens is organizations go down a path of doing the same things over and over again, assuming that they'll get a different outcome. Which, of course, is the definition of insanity. Which is the definition of insanity. What puts an organization, be it a government, a corporation, an agency, what puts it on the road to organizational psychosis? The common answer would be arrogance. The real answer would be a belief that they have all the information they need to make informed decisions, and they don't. And so they start going down a path of making a decision and being unwilling to say, I was wrong, and so they keep piling on things for that decision, and it begins to create a sense of irrationality, and that irrationality becomes very, very difficult for anyone to address. And because the individual who makes that decision has the power, control, and authority, persons become fearful to say, I think you're wrong. I think we need to go down a different path because the leader is in charge. So how does that apply to a culture such as Japan, which seems to be one of compliance and not rocking the boat and going along with whatever is in front of them without challenge? 
Well, I think that's a fairly clear description of what occurs. If, if you come from a xenophobic culture that says that everyone must think, act, feel, do the same, then it's very hard for anyone within that culture to bring up a concern that perhaps we might be going down a wrong path. Perhaps we might be making a poor decision. Perhaps we might be doing things that will harm people. Perhaps we're doing things that might cause a rethinking, revaluing of what we do in the culture to do something different. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? It does. Could you talk a little bit more about how this disconnect... I mean, it seems that there's something incongruent about being in a culture where something is known to be right, but the actions are wrong, such as what's been happening since the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster happened. Let's see if I can say it a little differently. Japan, in fact, most of Asia, operates from a very communal value set. And the communal value set says that what is best for the community, what is best for the culture, what is best for the group, is more important, more valuable than what happens for an individual. So that's the first thing. And to try and address that differently makes you an outlier, makes you an outcast, puts you on the outside of everyone else. If you are Japanese and you do that process of becoming the one who's the outcast, the outlier, you may not only experience isolation and separation from the from the corp, the organization of the corporation but you may experience it also from your family from your culture and everything else so you're all you're out there all by yourself now in the western world that is a process of individuation and that individuation allows persons to discover who they themselves are and what it means they might need to do in an Eastern philosophical stance, that's much more difficult because the process of individuation is not something that is valued. What is valued more is communalism. So for someone in Japan to say, I think we're going down the wrong path relative to the development of a nuclear reactor or the development of our nuclear policy and so forth, and, and you come from a culture where a leader can say something and everyone has to follow along, then the necessary role of individuation doesn't begin to occur. Instead, it's this communal role that continues to go down a wrong path, at least, let's say, in terms of nuclear thinking. Not necessarily a wrong path in everything, but sometimes some of the issues that have to be addressed in a society, in a culture, need to be addressed from an individuation standpoint more so than a communal standpoint. In Japan, with all the pressure for people to remain in a communal situation, since Fukushima Daiichi, there have been some truly egregious stances taken by the government. For example, they lied about the fact that three meltdowns had taken place. For months, they withheld that information. The Japanese government and TEPCO were not forthcoming about the radiation levels and dangers, not only for their own people, but to the United States government. And the USS Ronald Reagan, which went to Japan on a humanitarian mission, putting all the seamen aboard in harm's way. 
They will not allow people who are suffering the negative health impact of radiation exposure to even mention radiation as a possible cause when they go to see the doctor. And if anyone does mention radiation, they're made fun of and told that if they smile, they won't have any negative effects or suffering. So there's a huge disconnect between the communal following of leaders and the individual experience of many people in Japan. And that is starting to move them into activism. Is this a pattern you've seen happen in organizations where the personal disconnect from the leaders starts moving people into an activist response? And if so, how do you see that play out? Uh, Incongruence competition, which means I do not have equal power, so I create an organizational system that can challenge you with a sense of power. In America, that would have been the unions. Uh, challenging corporations around employee rights and things of that nature. In other places, rather than it being something as formalized as a union, it may be something such as a coalition of persons who pull together to fight against a particular issue. So there may be groups of Japanese persons who have banded together in a coalition effort to say something about radiation, say something about poor decision-making, say something about choices that harm the community, say something about choices that would impact children for a long time. Now, that's one way of looking at it. The underpinning component of that can be a form of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And what that means is that individuals experience a loss of three things, a loss of safety, a loss of security, and a loss of trust. When that gets built up over a long period of time without getting addressed, as you're describing, a patient goes to the doctor and the doctor says, smile and everything will be okay, persons begin to dissociate. And dissociation suggests that they will come up with a different persona, a different face, a different image to try and make themselves more acceptable to others, even though they're in enormous pain underneath. So once they're in disconnect from themselves, they might be moving into a personality that would be more challenging to authority than they would normally be. Do they usually go to the more passive state, or does it trigger people into activism? It could trigger people into an activist stance. But the activist stance would be more from a communal perspective than from a personal perspective. So they're they're trying to do it according to the cultural norms that they're used to, rather than doing it from where they themselves personally are, because that's not something they talk about. They don't talk about where they personally are. They talk about where we are rather than where I am. So once they're in disconnect from themselves, they might be moving into a personality that would be more challenging to authority than they would normally be. Do they usually go to the more passive state, or does it trigger people into activism? Potentially, yes. I couldn't say that unless I was actually there and could actually meet with persons to see that, but potentially, yes. Persons live by different schemas that they've created about their life. And the schemas are about who I am, how I relate to my world, how my world relates to me, and it gives a sense of of how I'm going to walk my path down this world. So let's say you are Japanese and you have created a schema that all is right, government will always tell me the truth, family is more important than individual, so forth and so on. You have a schema that you've created that says communalism is more important than individuation. That's the first schema. 
Now, as you walk through that process, if you begin to have hits against your schema, okay, finding out the government is lying, having challenges around the decision-making for a nuclear power plant being built, family telling you, shut up, be quiet, listen, and just do what everybody else is doing. All of a sudden, you're beginning to wonder whether or not your schema was real, whether or not your schema was a good schema, and you begin to sense that those challenges are there. So you begin to try and individuate. And as you begin to try and individuate, what the culture and everybody says to you is you're not worthy to individuate. You have to stay within the communal system. Okay? So you begin to become anxious, depressed, isolated, feeling invisible, feeling hidden, feeling trapped. And those emotions take a much greater hold of you than the normal stoic face that you would normally have. So even if you try and present a stoic face, underneath all this trauma is beginning to occur. And that's that process of dissociation. I present my stoic face, but underneath I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of turmoil, I'm in a lot of trauma, and I don't know how to help myself move. Okay? Now, the reason I said organizational psychosis is because the exact same thing that I've just described to you about an individual also occurs within the organization. An organization has made a decision. It wasn't a good one. But they can't go back because they would lose face and say, I've made a bad decision. We should not be doing this or we should do this differently. So they continue down this irrational spiral around the nature of the choices and the decisions that they make. Now, technologically, scientifically, throughout the world, we do things and implement things before we know everything about what we're doing. So sometimes we do things without knowing what the consequences are beforehand. Or we do things and either our information or the psychotic components of the organization cause us to demystify, devalue, disavow any real challenge with what we have done. So the government doesn't tell you about all the nuclear accidents or nuclear incidents that have occurred because they want to say they don't matter. Or they tell you that the radiation levels could never be large enough to really do you any harm. Or they tell you uh, the foods and everything that we grow are protected from the radiation. Or they tell you, doctors will help you, and at the same time they say to doctors, this is something you cannot talk about. All of those things are forms of the irrational structures being created around power control, disempowerment, and dysfunction. That's the nature of the organizational psychosis. Okay? So organizational psychosis ultimately becomes the manner in which we impair our interpersonal and organizational functioning and relationship to the internal and external world. And we block our potential, our ability to get things accomplished. So we create unsupported choices, ineffective decisions, personal discounting, and it becomes the direction in the way of the company or the, com or the country 
or whomever around a particular issue. So to try and say to a country or a government, you made decisions without real support, you made decisions that were ineffective, you made decisions that harmed us personally, even though you didn't think they were doing anything negatively to the business, all of those things are forms of the organizational psychosis that begins to occur. And breaking that process requires persons to look at things very, very differently through using differing types of lenses. That was where I wanted to move next, because in this discussion of organizational psychosis, you've not only described Japan and TEPCO, but also the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the U.S., the San Onofre operators, Southern California Edison, and really the rest of the nuclear industry. We've seen these behaviors up close. So if you were called in to promote a turn to organizational sanity or organizational congruence, let's keep taking Japan as the example, where would you start and what steps would need to be taken? Well, the first thing would be to ask them, do they really know what the issues are that are impacting them? And the them that you're talking about, is this the government, the population, uh, which is it? I could do it with all of them, okay? I could do it with all of them separately, collectively. But, but the issue is there are seven things they need to do. And the first is they must look at do they have true clarity around what the issues are and what the dynamics are. And that means that part of the clarity dynamic is understanding what's happening for people understanding what ha what's happening for systems, understanding what's happening for cultures, understanding what's happening for communities. If you do not go about getting all of that information up front, you never have clarity around the issues. Therefore, you can never make a sound decision about a strategy. So the first thing is to recognize you, get, you have to get clarity, and you have to get that from communal perspective as well as an individuation perspective. Secondly, you have to collaborate. Now, collaborating means you have to collaborate without power. It means you have to give up your power in order to be able to collaborate with someone else to hear what are possible outcomes, what are possible strategies. If you assume that because you had the MBA, because you're the CEO of a corporation, because you were this, you've been there a long time, that you know best, you cannot collaborate. Collaboration requires that I let go of, I surrender my power to experience what others have to say about the issue so that we can come up with a reasonable strategy. Third thing is what, what I would call compliments. There are always anchors within what has been done that you don't want to throw away. So the third thing is to recognize I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead, I want to try and understand what are the anchors that have mattered, that have worked well for our culture, our society, our organizations that I want to keep? While at the same time, I look at how to be different. The fourth is what I call creativity. Now, by that, I mean we have been taught in business school since 1980 that we should innovate, 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 innovate. Well, innovation means reworking the dead. You innovate because something stopped working. It died. So you're innovating it. Well, if this is going to work, you can't innovate. You can't take what has gone on with the budget and add 10% and assume that's going to work. Instead, you've got to be creative. So that means you have to not pay attention to what the dead was, 
but instead look at what really will resolve the issues for all the persons impacted. Remember in organizational psychosis, it's about power, control, and authority through irrational choice. So in order to create, you have to be willing to give up the power, control, and authority to be able to see what options and possibilities really do exist. If you're able to do those first four, clarity, collaboration, compliments, and creativity, then you are able to make a choice. And the choice is a creative choice. From that choice, you then must look at what are the multiple levels if we make this choice that are either happening or not happening, and how do we close that gap? Okay? And only by doing that can you get to a place of congruence. So my first perspective would be that those first four steps have never taken place around nuclear power. I think that would be accurate. No, they've never taken place around nuclear power, nuclear reactors, nuclear infusion into a community. Because the decision-making process, the thinking process, the acting process has been compartmentalized rather than congruent. So it's almost as though they went through a Cartesian perspective that said, if I tweak this component over here, everything else will get fixed. And in reality, that doesn't occur. Okay? So effectually, what we've created globally is ineffective organizations, organizational incongruence, and substantive organizational psychosis. And we push away we push away anyone who might say something about that, like me, or like the coalition groups in Japan, who might say, stop, can we at least dialogue about what exists? Can we at least dialogue and speak truth about what is happening, rather than continually trying to save face? How do we make a real difference that works effectively for the entire population, rather than the government and the organization. It sounds like something that needs to come from a willingness within government or the organization. And, of course, the situation that we are facing is that neither the Japanese government nor TEPCO, we'll leave the U.S. out of it for now, but that neither one of them seems open to this kind of a course correction. What advice would you give to the anti-nuclear movement, to those who are wanting more congruence and sanity on this issue? What kind of steps could we take from the outside to try and create that change within the dysfunctional government and corporate organizations? Create that by sharing with people what is the level of organizational incongruence, what is the level of organizational psychosis, and how has it shaped and shifted and changed the country and the culture? So you're talking about the equivalent of consciousness raising, people reaching out to each other and talking to build consensus. Consciousness raising and action raising as well. Because just raising someone's conscious consciousness does not mean that they will therefore take action to empower themselves around that consciousness. So you have to do both at the same time. That's one. The second piece is, it doesn't have to come just from the government or from the company that, that has created the nuclear power. It can come from everyone else who can speak to what are the challenges. When you think about organizational psychosis, there's some other components. Some of the other components are content of thought. 
when the thoughts that you're using in your actions by the government or by the company perpetuate implausible outcomes and a sense of persecution and paranoia, that blocks the ability of people to really have a clear sense of what's going on. So that's sort of like content of thought. If the forms of thought are about creating fear and creating myopia and creating only one way of looking at things, and the forms of thought are fighting the loosening of traditional strong associations within an organization. One of the challenges is, in all of those things, content of thought, form of thought, perception, is it's about thinking. It is not about affect and feeling. And change only occurs when the affect is initialized. Tell us a little bit more about what that means. You can't create change within a society or within yourself if there's not an accessing of your emotions, your feelings that are driving what is impacting you, what's, what's harming you. So if your affect is flat, listless, lethargic, protective, psychosis is set in in the organization and the person. If the person, however, can access their affect and say, I feel this, I desire this, I, I hurt here, I enjoy this here, I do that, whatever, then they're beginning to become alive in their process. Flat affect leads to depression, despondency, and listlessness on the job. And in this case, it's created depression, despondency, and listlessness within the society and the culture. Because everybody's saying, I feel this, why can't you hear me? I feel this, why don't you touch me? I feel this, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't? And the response ultimately is, smile. The response ultimately is, stand quietly in line as we have always done. The response is never, I hear you. What can I do to help you? That's not the response you get. So, the sense of self gets attacked. The ability to sense yourself as unique, capable, competent, responsive, has been replaced by a belief that you are incompetent, unable to perform, analytical, and usually function without direction. So the sense of self-direction, self-empowerment, belief in self, gets knocked away. So... There becomes no volition. There is a disturbance in self-initiation. There's a disturbance in goal-directed activity. There's a disturbance in role functioning. And people don't know who they are any longer. And the disconnect creates massive dissociation. So it sounds like one of the key aspects of turning this around by the activist community and to help support the growing protest in Japan is that we need to access those emotions with honesty and clarity and make the emotional response visible to others. Would that be accurate? That would be accurate. But here's how I would try and help persons to hear that. To be whole systemically within an organization, communally within your community and culture, individually, is you have to pay attention to four capitals. Those four capitals are human capital, community capital, resource capital, and political capital. Human capital is about the people, what's going on within the people, for the people, and how are the people 
being empowered to, to help themselves be all they can be. Community capital is about the community and the culture. To what extent are the values, beliefs, norms that we've lived by that have helped us grow and be who we are being sustained by the actions that we're taking? Resource capital is about money, equipment, and power. And political capital is about political influence and your ability to impact and get things accomplished by going around the system. Now, since the time of Ronald Reagan and his defeat of the Air Traffic Controllers Union and so forth and so on, we have moved from a focus on the four capitals to a focus on the two capitals. Meaning politics and resources? Resource and political capital, and we've forgotten about human and community capital for almost 35 years. Now, what does that mean? It means that all the actions of business, all the actions of government, have focused on two of four capitals. They haven't focused on the total system. So we have consistently, since that time, made our globe a psychotic globe, our organizations a psychotic organizations, everything, because if you're only focusing on the two and not including the four, then every decision you make disavows the human and community capital. Every decision you make is only focused on the resource and political capitals. That is so accurate. It's a description, certainly, of what's happening here in the United States with the nuclear issue, and it explains Japan. And all I'm saying is the healing space, the healing process, is about the reinvigorating of the four capitals. It's about using my seven C's to understand how to get things accomplished. And it's about paying attention to where systemic processes have really not been systemic but have instead been compartmentalized strategies to create a certain outcome. And so change is based on trying to understand that. And so I have a process by which I teach people how to do that, how to get through that level of psychosis to a sense of organizational wellness, how to get individuals from that process of psychosis to a sense of wellness, how to help individuals look at the schemas that that are taking them downward and how to instead build different schemas that can cause them to see their worlds differently. If people want to learn more about your work, where can they go? They can go to www.ittl.org, which is the Institute for Transformative Thought and Learning. If they have specific questions they want to ask, they can ask me by emailing me at O-R-G-D-O-C-T-O-R at I-T-T-L dot O-R-G. Or they can call me if they really want to discuss it at 602-300-1180. This has been a fascinating conversation because you actually have a schema that explains where good governments and other organizations go bad, where maybe they weren't good to begin with, but they were better than they are now, so that by understanding the structure that you put forth and where the problems have been perpetuated, we have a chance to institute change. 
If you have a final thought or suggestion to leave with those of us who are working for nuclear sanity in the world, what would that be? One, go slow to go fast, meaning really assure that you have all the information that you need, that you've walked the path of trying to connect all the dots between people, systems, and culture and community, and then create a plan of action. That would be go slow to go fast. Two, recognize that, that congruence is the underpinning base of what you're trying to get to, so that what you feel, what you think, and what you do match and are aligned. And three, learn to trust yourself. If you can trust yourself, you can make movement. That was Dr. Lloyd C. Williams, and the links to his website, email, and phone number will all be posted on the Nuclear Hot Seat website, www.nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Here's today's final thought. Last week's report from the World Health Organization, calling the risk of health hazard resulting from Fukushima low, was clearly the nuclear industry's attempt to derail the significance of Dr. Helen Caldicott's global symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. It also positioned itself to be center stage in all reports on the two-year anniversary of Fukushima in mainstream media. That report was positioned to be the ultimate reliable source quoted by lazy, incompetent reporters who haven't bothered to dig into the nuclear subject at all. It's already been cited by Reuters and the New York Times, and who knows how many other places. Who is a Judas goat positioned to lead the world further into nuclear catastrophe? What most people don't understand is that the World Health Organization signed an agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency in May of 1959 that makes WHO subordinate to the authority of the IAEA on all matters dealing with ionizing radiation. That's right. The World Health Organization is not allowed to say anything about radiation unless the IAEA, the global promoter of the nuclear industry, approves. And what are the odds that's ever going to happen? Who has been gagged and forced to promote nuclear untruths? In essence, this makes who the equivalent of a terrorized, abused child, defenseless to contradict the power of its nuclear perpetrators at the IAEA. This is organizational psychosis made manifest. The sadists who run the nuclear industry must get tremendous joy out of forcing the WHO's complicity in destroying people and the environment. But in all cases of abuse, there comes a time when the abused must stop being ruled by the abuser. Just as sexual abuse survivors have turned their painful truths into a routing of pedophile priests and a global decrease in the power of the Catholic Church, hell, they're probably the key factor in forcing the ex-pope, formerly known as Benedict, to resign. Just like sexual abuse survivors have, the WHO must turn and speak truth to power regarding nuclear. It already happened once, if only by accident. In 2011, WHO Secretary General Margaret Chan actually spoke the truth. She said, radiation is always dangerous. Not that the mainstream media picked up her comment. Now is the time for Secretary General Chan and WHO to do more. The report they just issued is crap. It's evil. It's dangerous. Radiation has no impact. 
Tell that to the Japanese kids who already have thyroid cancer, to the ones who have nodules, to the leukemia patients. If you're going to be the World Health Organization, be the World Health Organization. Tell the truth. Break that law. Change it. Whistleblowers from who? Find us and tell us the truth so we can support you from the outside and get your message out. And if you can't do that, walk away from the agency. Appeasement of evil never works. Just ask the ghost of Neville Chamberlain. Don't be a tool in the nuclear industry's tool belt. Step forward with the truth now. A few reminders. Dr. Caldecott's symposium, which is so crucial in its information, it's already being attacked before it takes place, will be live-streamed. So no matter where you are, if you have a computer and a good Wi-Fi hookup, you'll be able to follow it. Go to HelenCaldecottFoundation.org to get all of the details. I'm going to be at the symposium next week, and Nuclear Hot Seat will be recorded there live on site. I have no idea exactly what that means, but it should be interesting. With next Monday, March 11, being the second anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, there will be actions around the world from March 9 onward. We have links to several of them on the Nuclear Hot Seat website, but it's in no way all-inclusive, and I urge you to Google nuclear activism and add the name of your local community. When you find something, join it. If you don't find something, start it. There are human chains taking place in Europe, A refusal to use energy from nuclear perpetrator Southern California Edison within the 50-mile evacuation radius of the San Onofre nuclear reactors, a march from Times Square in New York to the United Nations, and so much more. After this anniversary, step up and help us fight the ongoing nuclear crisis. You can do so by contacting the Coalition Against Nukes on their website or Facebook site and joining in their bi-weekly Strategy Bounce phone calls as we set and follow through with a global agenda of our own. Find something to do to educate yourself and take part, because we need all of you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 5th, 2013. Material for this podcast was gathered from ENE News, thank you, Grant, Yoko Collin and the Facebook group Chernobyl Children, Fukushima Children, the Associated Press, Spokesman Review, Biogeosciences, Kyoto News, the Yomiuri Shimbun, NewYorkTimes.com, Reuters, and the ever-vigilant, ever-popular Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. Special thanks to Zach Nochemico Reuter for giving Nuclear Hot Seat the opportunity to break the story of one nuclear success up in Canada. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog, or you can get the entire library on iTunes podcasts. We can also be found if you friend me and or Nuclear Hot Seat on its two Facebook pages. Share us, link to us. Hey, send a link to this podcast to your personal list, friends, family, or anyone you know in the media. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Going out on a little bit of music in the background. Bet you recognize it. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, do not 
go back to sleep.